Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. France Windance Twine will join us to discuss Geek Girls. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. show. Well, the tech industry may seem forward-thinking, but in part of a culture not the most suited for promoting the advancement of both women and minorities. And joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. France Windance Twine. Dr. Twine is currently a professor of sociology at the University of California at Santa Barbara. She's a leading scholar of social inequalities and has published numerous books, articles, reviews, and essays on the topic. Her new book, Geek Girls, Inequality and Opportunity in Silicon Valley. Dr. Twine, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for having me. I'm really delighted to be here. Oh, well, it's certainly our pleasure. Certainly a great book put together here, Geek Girls, in which you dive into the sort of the inequalities that occur in Silicon Valley. I'm curious why you decided to put the book together. Well, I lived in San Francisco for many years. And so one of the things that always struck me is I personally knew a lot of people, women and underrepresented minorities, who had studied computer science and engineering, and they were struggling to find jobs in the Valley. What really inspired me to put this book together and do the research was in 2014, the San Jose Mercury News filed the Freedom of Information Act to force some of the tech companies to release the demographics of their workplace. So prior to 2014, we didn't actually know what percentage of the workforce for Google, Facebook, Twitter, various companies, we didn't know the racial, ethnic, and gender background of their workforce because the industry had convinced the government that this was a trade secret and that it would be damaging to them if this information was revealed. So after that Freedom of Information Act, the San Jose Mercury News published some early reports in which it was shown that only 2 to 6% of the employees for those companies that revealed it were Black or Latino. And that seemed really low, right? And the explanation or the reason for this given by the CEOs was we just can't find enough qualified people from those backgrounds who want to work in the industry. And I just didn't think that was an accurate representation, but I didn't have any data. So I started interviewing people in the industry from what we call legacy firms like Facebook, Google, Twitter, Salesforce, as well as startups to find out how people got into the industry. I wanted to understand the pathways into these jobs. So I felt like we didn't have the data. No one had really investigated this except for some of the technology journalists. That is really a surprising number, just 2 to 6%. At that time, yeah, and it's still pretty bad. But I think Blacks were roughly 2%, and Latinx, which can include people who self-identify as white, that was 4 to 
And so it was really murky. And we didn't know some companies had a multiracial category, but we don't really know who that includes. So basically, I just found it really challenging to accept the fact that people did not want to work. People who were Black or Latinx did not want these jobs. It didn't make sense to me, especially given how many Black engineers and computer scientists are produced by historically Black colleges or HBCUs. They weren't being hired either. Investigating this, what were the underlying issues within these tech firms that led to this outcome? So first I found that there is in a lot of these firms what I would call a monoculture. So there's a lot of cultural conformity that's required. For example, the way that Google and some of these firms do their interviews is your interview may occur over four to seven months where you're interviewed by various teams. And if you don't listen to the same music, have grown up reading the same books, have the same cultural tastes or interests, that can negatively impact your ability to get a job. For example, I grew up on the South Side of Chicago during a very specific historical moment. So let's say I grew up listening to different music or reading things and I didn't share that. That would be interpreted as a lack of cultural fitness. I wouldn't culturally blend in. So that was an issue. But there were also bigger issues. One of my big findings is that networks really matter. We know they matter. I interviewed a lot of people who had degrees in computer science or engineering or were technically skilled. And they still weren't able to get the jobs without the right networks because they couldn't get the introductions or they couldn't get through this process in which they were seen as a good cultural match. So that was one finding. Another finding that really surprised me is how many women who had not earned degrees in engineering or computer science were able within six months to shift from a non-tech job to a technically skilled position as a software engineer. The way they did that is they went to coding boot camps. These are skills-based engineering camps, and at that time it cost roughly $10,000 to $12,000. There are more now. And if you had the information and if your husband or partner or friend knew about these camps and you were already embedded in what I call the tech ecosystem, and you had either savings or a partner or a family member who would loan you the money, you could go to a coding boot camp, get those skills, and transition in three months to a really good job. So they provided skills, but they, these coding boot camps, referring to all women coding boot camps, these boot camps were basically a way for you to network and to get a mentor because they would provide you with career mentors, technical mentors, so what that means is that it's not really just about having skills because a lot of these skills, you can get trained on the job. If you think of an internship, it was having the right connections really matter just as much as the skills. And in the case of black women, the networks mattered often more than the skills. So I was really surprised that one fifth of the white women I interviewed who were in software engineers had earned their degrees in the arts and humanities. But they were either the daughter of or the wife or partner of a white male engineer. And so they had a lot of knowledge and a lot of connections. And once they decided they wanted to shift to a career as a software engineer, it just involved them paying $12,000, going to a boot camp, and then often they would be matched with mentors in the industry. 
underscores that importance for social capital, which is oftentimes missing for both women and minorities. Is the culture shifting, do you think? Is there more awareness of these issues now that making an active effort? I think there's awareness, but I think we can't underestimate the ongoing role of racism because there are also a lot of assumptions made about individuals, about their abilities based on their racial or ethnic background. So there is an awareness, but I think the tech industry is not that different from other industries in terms of the fact there's a leadership there's a leadership structure and there's a power structure. And in Silicon Valley, the decision makers are primarily Asian and white men. And they're not bad people, but they tend to favor their own or people who dropped out of the same schools they went to. So I'll give you an example. We tend to think of college dropouts like that's a bad thing, right? That's something that would harm your career. But if you're in Silicon Valley and you drop out from Stanford or Harvard or MIT, you can still get a really great job because they recognize, because we have the Mark Zuckerberg effect and we have so many male engineers who are self-taught or learned a lot of things, there are a lot of skills can be learned outside of a classroom. That is why the coding boot camps made such a big difference beginning in 2012. So there's an awareness, but I think there's still a refusal to acknowledge the degree to which racism and sexism are operating. And I think if you have a father or brother or family member in the industry, they can shield you somewhat from that. And also, there's so many startups. There are also a lot of really great startups and companies that are promoting women and underrepresented minorities. The underrepresented minorities are Black, Latinos, and Native Americans born in the United States. So there are people we refer to as minorities who are not minorities in Silicon Valley. So that would be immigrants from India, say. We know in sociology that we, we're not always aware of this, but we have, everybody has a tendency to feel more comfortable around people who look like them or have the same level of education or from the same region, right? That's just a kind of a normal thing. The problem in Silicon Valley is that I think there's been not enough willingness to really look at their hiring practices. So, for example, a lot of companies pay fees. If, if you refer someone to the company and they're hired and they stay for a year, you may get as much as $10,000. And it's, it's a social referral fee. So one of the issues that I think is still a problem is that if I know you, or I went to school with you, and I have a job in, at a firm, and I refer you, you're someone from my social network, you have an in, and you're more likely to get hired because you can always already fit in because you already know people and have friendships uh, with people in that company. So among the people I interviewed, about 80% of them said that their company did some of their hiring 30 to 50% through social referrals. So that's a problem because that means if you don't have that social connection, you could be disadvantaged and you're experiencing a different review process. You're going through a different recruitment process. So I think more attention needs to be paid to how people are being recruited and also to acknowledge that a lot of the people who are hired are trained on the job. So it's not like everybody has to come in and, and having a computer science degree or a degree in engineering does not mean 
that you are prepared for the specific job that you're hired for. Because as you and I know, the, the industry is so dynamic. They're discovering things every year. They're new inventions, new apps. So it's a field in which it, the landscape is constantly changing because of new technologies. So I think there's an over-reliance on credentials. That's what I would say. As if the nature of the job, it being highly technical, those who are in the position oftentimes would maybe ascribe their success to their skill and pay less attention to their social capital, even though that might have been the major factor. Right. It's messy, right? So the term in the book, geek capital, and geek capital refers to your proximity socially and romantically to people in the industry. I think one issue is that we don't want to believe that our social networks matter as much as they do, because just because your social networks matter doesn't mean you didn't work really hard, and it doesn't mean you don't have talent. We have an investment in the myth of meritocracy, because there's so many qualified people, and you have to find a way to weed people out. But I think a bigger issue is that this is really how power operates. We also, in these companies, you, you also want to hire people who can work on a team and fit in. The problem is if the team is composed of all men and all these men are from the same background and they all went to a small number of schools, they don't necessarily recognize talent when it comes in a different body type because they're familiar with who they went to school with, who they grew up with. And it's just easier. It's easier and it's cheaper actually for the companies to hire people through social referrals or to work with professional recruiters. So the book that I'm now writing and working on is actually about recruiters because I didn't interview any recruiters for this book, but recruiters kept coming up as key power brokers. But at the end of the day, you do what's effective and what's easy. And it's very effective and easy to identify people who went to a small number of schools and we trust their credentials. So if you have a credential from Carnegie Mellon, or MIT, or Harvard, even if you dropped out, we assume that that credential has more meaning than, say, if you went to a, a lesser-ranked state school somewhere. So I think that we need to have harder conversations about how we measure and evaluate talent. Uh, these practical consequences, too, in terms of what gets made in Silicon Valley, as, as you point out, a certain mindset, a certain way of thinking that leads to certain products that might not best serve society. Right. I mean, we're really, we're seeing it in AI. We're seeing it in robotics. If you think about it, I taught an article a couple of years ago to my students. It's called Our Robots Race. And obviously robots aren't racist, but if, if you think about the information that we feed to robots as we're training them, who decides what they're fed? So we're teaching them to learn, but they're learning our own biases, depending on what types of data they're fed. For example, Google had trained this, this AI program so that if you were a woman and you had been in a woman's group at college, or but anything that signaled a woman's only group would actually be a negative in your evaluation. It would be coded as a negative. They were trying to create an AI tool for hiring and recruitment. But because of the types of resumes that they fed into this program, it ended up discriminating against women. So eventually they canceled that software. But that's just a small example. So if you don't have people 
from diverse backgrounds. Grounds. And I would also say age discrimination is a really big issue that I did not address in the book that also occurs in Silicon Valley. If you don't have people with different life experiences and different backgrounds, it's going to affect what you invent. It's going to affect your protocols, your research protocols. And I think this assumption that tech is neutral, this is the problem. Human beings are not just, we're not simply rational. And so there's this assumption that tech products and, and AI is neutral. It's race, race, race and gender neutral. And it can't be. And it definitely is not neutral if 85% of your engineers are from a similar background, whether it's a class background, whether they went to the same schools. And, and so I think we just need to have some tough conversations and but what's happening is a lot of people who if you question certain things you get pushed out and there's so many jobs and so many startups that you can just leave that company and go somewhere else so it's not that the entire industry is tainted but i do think there's a problem with some of the companies because they have so much power i mean they have a lot of power and a lot of influence especially because it's an unregulated industry and I think that's what we have to keep in mind. We're talking about an unregulated industry. Is that the way forward? Is more regulation, more oversight of these companies? Yeah, definitely. I definitely think we need more oversight. Just look at what happened with Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes. You may have seen the documentary that's called Out for Blood. So this woman was able to get millions of dollars and no one was checking to see if her product worked. This is an example. And the industry definitely needs to be regulated. We know that based on all of the sexual harassment and racial harassment lawsuits, meaning that women have been systematically underpaid at Google across every job category. That took years and years. They initially refused to give the Department of Labor their payroll data. That's how much power they had. They fought for over a year with the Labor Department. And once they, the data was released, an economist was like, oh, we have systematic pay discrimination. It's the worst we've ever seen. So this is what was happening in the 1970s in law firms. And we thought we'd move beyond this. So I think we definitely need regulation. I also think we need better data collection. We still don't know. Like, I can't tell you what percentage of the workforce is between is under 40, say. I can tell you just visually going into tech companies that it's hard to find anybody under 40 or 45. Is that necessarily a good thing? So the companies aren't giving us data either on why people leave, right? And under what conditions they leave. So we know that some companies have a difficult time retaining women, retaining people of childbearing age. The industry needs to be regulated. This is very similar to what was happening in the late 19th century when the railroad was an unregulated industry and people like Leland Stanford of Stanford University owned the Pacific Railroad. The railroad was unregulated, so they were able to really charge whatever they wanted for transporting things. This was the really central industry at that time, and it was a completely unregulated and corrupt industry. So, yes, we do need regulation. Because all our lives are, have been digitized. If you think about what happened to your life and my life and all of our lives during the pandemic, we had to move our lives online. To some extent, especially white-collar workers, 
had to go digital. I mean, I had to move all of my classes online. That means we're more and more dependent upon the tech industry. And we know there's been a lot of problems with surveillance and with people not understanding what information is being collected about them and how that information is distributed. I don't have one of those rumbas, the little robots that clean your floors. I've never had one of those. But we found out a couple of years ago that they were sending information about your living spaces to that company and people didn't know. So yes, we do need regulation. Because it's so young in many ways and because there's the patina of equality, they've been given a pass in many ways and they're now going through the growing pains a lot of industries go through. I can tell you this. It has not always been as bad as it is. This industry, if you look at the opportunities that were made available to women, and I briefly talk about this in the, in, in the intro chapter, there was a lot more equality and opportunities for women working in, the, in NASA and the defense-related industry. I'm thinking of Lockheed Martin. But the aerospace industry hired a lot more women in the 60s than they may do now. In other words, it hasn't been a linear narrative of progress. So the Bay Area has been an innovation for the electronics industry for over 100 years. I don't know. I really can't predict. I do think if we don't start having regulation, there's no incentive to change the power structure. There's no incentive to be more inclusive. Because being more inclusive does not mean simply hiring foreign nationals. That is a form of diversity, but you shouldn't have to go to the top schools in Massachusetts or California or India to get a job. There are a lot of different jobs besides being a coder or an engineer. They have artists. I interviewed a number of graphic artists, for example, and these are people who design the look of the app, the look of apps and, you know, kind of the visual architecture of the, of the phones. So I don't know how that's going to change without a labor movement in that industry. Now, there is some hope during the pandemic, some of the workers at Google, whose parent company is Alphabet, organized an Alphabet workers union. But one of the challenges that I see in this industry is historically labor unions have have fought for wages, right? Increased wages, right? The issue has been getting more pay. This is an industry where people are really well paid. So even though there are forms of what we would consider to be labor exploitation and there's inequality, are you really going to walk away from a six-figure job in order to fight for equality? Now, there are people who are, are willing to do that. But I think one of the challenges is it's such a lucrative industry. And so many of the people in the industry are so young and have very little experience in any other industry because they went from college or dropping out of a top school directly into that industry. So they have no historical memory. So when you have people under the age of 30 or 35 earning between 200 and 400 K, this is not, you know, this is not necessarily how you get social change, right? Because they're, they're earning, they're earning more than their parents or grandparents, right? In most cases, they're buying their parents' homes. So I, I think one of the problems is it's such a lucrative career and you're talking about people who are very young who tend to trade jobs, change jobs every two years. That was another finding. The average software engineer or even graphic artist I interviewed changed jobs every two to four years. 
So this is not a generation where you stay at your job for 20 years. You're always on to the next thing. Maybe you'll become an entrepreneur by 40. So because it's so dynamic, I think that undermines worker solidarity. Maybe just to close, people picking up the book, what would you really like them to take home after reading it? I would like people to take home the assumptions we make about the skills that are needed to have a job in the tech industry. And I would like people to understand that there are so many technically skilled women who are not white, who are being denied opportunities in an industry that has minted billionaires. And it's a form of injustice. It's just a form of injustice. This is an industry that has generated so much wealth. And I think that we need to understand that it's, it's not, it doesn't take someone with a PhD in theoretical physics to figure out how to make this a more inclusive industry. Those might be the least people to ask. <laughs> right, right. But like, this is not difficult. So I think there are a lot of mythologies operating. And one is that we don't have Blacks and Latinx and working class white people in the industry because they don't have the talent or skills or they're not interested in these jobs. That's just not true. They're not being given opportunity. Well, this is really a great book. I certainly hope people will take a look at it. We were just talking with Dr. France Windance Twine. She has penned the new book, Geek Girls, Inequality and Opportunity in Silicon Valley. Dr. Twine, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. It was great. And can I just add, the book is available as an ebook and audiobook also. Thank you again so much for your time. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye-bye. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.